stories are the software of our lives. We as the humans, the hardware, need an upgrade of our spiritual software, our stories, our wisdom more than ever. Each of these episodes will be like a performance psychologist, philosopher, religious professor, and a monk walked into a bar and had a conversation. It's just me on this podcast because that's the weird conversation that's happening in my brain. I'll be drawing from other wisdom traditions, but each episode will be drawing from one main tradition, the Bible. I'll be drawing from 40 stories. And as I look at these 40 stories, I'll be distilling it down so that you can find the wisdom you need to help upgrade your story wherever you find yourself. The polycontemplative approach is not dedicated to any belief system or ideology. It's an invitation for all of us to pay attention to wisdom that's been passed down our way for thousands of years and learn from it in a new, fresh way today. Am I talking to anybody out there that's tired? that's feeling the weight of uncertainty. Maybe it's for you as an individual. It's just the struggle that life is walking you into this wilderness moment where things aren't making sense. And we're going to do some episodes around that. Or maybe it's the collective experience that we all feel right now. I feel like nothing says 2020 better than a few mornings ago when I was fixing myself a cup of coffee and I looked down on the kitchen counter and there it was, a bag of plastic straws. See, I remember in 2019 when my kids wanted to save the turtles. They got on that bandwagon. I get it. I was for it. Metal straws all the way. In 2020, we don't have the energy for that. There's too much else going on. And so as we look at where we've come from in this journey, we looked at in episode one, these three great problems we face as humans. In episode two, what it means to find who we are apart from the institution. And in episode three, that we have this incredible resource within ourselves that all things are ours. And then in episode four, the journey of change and the unlearning that happens with the story of Elijah today, as we go through that process, I want to give you a place that you can come back to over and over and over again. This story offers me so much wisdom. And it's so counterintuitive. The reason it's counterintuitive is because the story that we're going to be looking at, it's out of one of the Gospels, John. It's different than the other three. Whoever wrote John, you know, had a different take on things. And they structured the story as these writers did in this book of books. They structured the story with seven miracles to make this bigger point. And as they were structuring this story and making this point about who Jesus is through these seven miracles, it's really interesting when you think about, wouldn't the first miracle state a lot? Well, yes, it would. Glad you wondered about that. And so the story that we're looking at here is when Jesus turned water into wine. See, Jesus is at this wedding with his mom, and she just says it, you know, they're out of wine. They got no wine. And Jesus is like, what's this got to do with us, with me and you? It's interesting that he says me and you, not just me. But he does say, what's this got to do with me and you? Why is that interesting? Well, polycontemplative approach, pecans, you go search it out. Think about it, consider it, wonder about it, ruminate on it, imagine it. But anyway, he says, uh, yeah, my time hasn't come yet. This isn't the moment. And then she looks at the servers and says, do whatever he tells you. In other words, she ain't having any of it. Now, this is fascinating to me because the feminine here is drawing out the change. And that has all kinds of implications for this story. That has all kinds of implications for where we're headed. So he says, do whatever he tells you to. So he tells them to take some water 
from these stone jars. Now, these stone jars would have been used for the purification rites, for cleansing. So this is water, and it's water used for a dirty process, if you will. And then they take this water that's out of these stone jars to the head waiter, the head server. They let him taste it, and he's like, whoa, to the bridegroom. Most people save the best or give the best wine first, save the worst wine for last when the guests are too drunk to know. But you save the best for last? Hmm. This is a cool story. Here's why it's cool to me. Because what, whatever you're raised in, that's what you shape your worldview around. If you're raised, you know, in a, in a strict conservative Hindu home, then your take on Hinduism is strict conservatism. If you're raised in a home that is uh, strict around a conservative brand of Christianity, then that's what you're going to think about. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus is called a glutton and a drunkard. So he's a heavy eater heavy drinker. He's with the tax collectors who were the people that were oppressing others. And he ate with the people that he shouldn't have been eating with. He's willing to go to the table with anyone and everyone. He's willing to go to the table with anyone and everyone. And as we look at the progression of this story, we find that this character isn't at all like we thought he would be. I mean, uh, who's this martyr that's super serious and all about sacrifice and yet, he wasn't really that way as we introduce, as we find an introduction of him into the story that he was a glutton and a drunkard. And then we also think about this idea of what it means to be religious or spiritual. And so much of that is about restraint. When this story is so much about excess, it was six stone jars, somewhere between 120, 180 gallons possibly of wine, way more than they needed. So what is going on here in this story? For this story, it invites me back into three wisdoms, three approaches that change everything. The first one is this, just the joy of living. This story is an invitation for me to come back to the joy of living. There's an earthiness to this story. It's these stone water jars that are used for cleansing. So much of spirituality and religion and the monk and philosophy and performance psychology is about the heavens, getting to the achieved ultimate state. When in reality, the deepest transformation occurs where the paradise, the heaven, the ideal meets the reality, the earth. And this story for me is a, is a calling back into the joy of living. There's going to be a time we're going to cover this, uh, episode 12, where I'm going to talk a lot more about, unless that changes, uh, uh, about how agricultural religions and hunter-gatherer religions, and there's, there's a transition that occurred that causes us to really misunderstand what a word like holiness would mean. Holiness isn't this perfect other state. Holiness is wholeness. It's the it's the duty, it's the honor and the sacrifice and the sensuality and the whimsy. It's the yin-yang of it. And this story, the joy of living, it's at a wedding that water has turned into wine. I'm reminded of all these realities. There, there's All of us can get into a place where we're just too serious. Um, it's hard not to hear the Batman line when I say that. But but we think we control so much. James 4, there's this wisdom teaching that says, you know, you're going to go to this city. You say you're going to go to this city and do business this year. You're going to go to that city and do business next year. And then Corona hits. 
It actually says that. No. We think we control so much, and we don't. We don't control as much as we think we do. So what do we do? How do we make peace with this? Well, this story is, for me, a real clear reference point to the Ecclesiastes poem of wisdom that says, basically, so much we can't control. So much is meaningless. What does it have meaning? At the top level, eat, drink, be merry, and do work you enjoy. I mean, like if you can create a life where, where you can eat, drink, be merry, and do work you enjoy, you win. Now, beyond that, Ecclesiastes talks about let's aim to get wisdom, and beyond that, let's avoid folly. Great. Awesome. That's what I want to make my life about. To really be rich is not what people have thought. It has nothing to do with so much of the social status games. Instead, it's the joy of living. To, to really be rich and to not overreact or to not overthink, but to come back to this place that I'm reminded that the water is turned to wine. See what happens when the water is turned to wine? Do not miss in this story that the first miracle that Jesus is doing is helping drunk people get more drunk. This is a crazy idea. What this story reminds me of with the joy of living is that there's a process that happens when my mind and heart is open. You know, we say that you you consume the spirits, right? Now, hopefully you're going to get, as I walk through this, we're talking about way more than wine as a physical drink. We're talking about to drink from the wine of life. And it also means the physical drink, but I'm saying it's so much more than that. To drink from the joy of living, I have a giant wine glass, to drink from the joy of living is to understand that I'm in a place that I want to be. I enjoy where I'm headed in life and I enjoy getting there. For me, I I talk about this state in different ways, but it's something that we see happen with the right amount of wine. The right brain gets one second ahead of the left brain. The right brain is open. Now, too much, and you lose the faculty of the left brain. But what I'm talking about is a, is a state of living that I want to be in at all times. That, that my right brain is open to the inspirations, to the imagination, to the spirit, to the spirits. And then my left brain is one second behind in that dance. It's testing the spirits. It's providing rationalism. I think about it as, and I'm intentionally doing this, a mystical rationalism. I'm open to the muse. I'm open to the imaginative impulse. I'm open to hear the still small voice. I'm hoping to hear the sound of thin silence. And then I'm using the left brain to guide me and to provide discernment. See, if you and I are in a place where there's any kind of evolutionary struggle, and we're in a place of great order. In that moment, in a place of order, the evolutionary advantage goes to whoever the person is that can specialize and notice the particular detail. But when you're in a place of chaos, of extreme newness, the evolutionary advantage goes to the person who can find the new pattern, who's not focused on the smaller detail, but focused on the bigger picture. We need our whole brain because we are in moments of chaos and order at any given time in life. Now, I think for a lot of us right now, because we're in a lot of chaos, that's why the story of this water turning into wine is a wonderful invitation to come back to the joy of living because I imbibe the wine of living and I'm imbibing it in all that I do. And again, if you literally think I'm saying I drink wine all day long, I'm not saying that at all. This story is so much bigger than that. I I think it's got some wisdom for you if you need it on your use of alcohol. 
if if alcohol is used by you to escape life to cope with it, that's dangerous. If you're using it to enhance celebration, well, that's where it's affirmed. All alcohol does, like I heard a doctor say about steroids, all steroids do. They just bring out what's in there. Steroids don't make you angry. They bring out what's in there. Life is bringing out what's in you. Now, you don't have to feel shame over that. If you're not happy with the response, you can change it. You can turn the water into wine. But wherever you're at, a new leadership responsibility, position, or struggle brings out what's there. And that doesn't bring hopelessness. Instead, it's a reminder that I can turn the water into wine. See, this story is an invitation to the joy of living because we find that living isn't about what we thought it was. It's not about trying to beat desire down. So many people are approach morality and values, like they're just trying to beat their desires down, or they're trying to earn some kind of paradise. I trust people more that choose values because it's the right thing to do as a human, to do good unto others as you would have them do unto you. I, I trust people that would choose those values more just because of the value of it than because they're trying to get a paradise. I trust the people more that don't even believe in the paradise when they're choosing that value out of a wholeness of this is what it means to be a good human. Morality and values, they're not just about beating down desires. It's not about trying to gain some kind of paradise. And it's not just trying to repeat the cultural heritages and traditions we've been given. Instead, it's about water turning into wine, internal transformation. When I can relax and enjoy it, and it's the joy of living as I'm becoming, how do I now want to live? What are the values that are coming out of that? approach as I eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy the work that I do? What's it mean for me to live a wise life and to be relaxed in my imagination, to contemplate a right vision brain where, or a brain where my right brain is ahead of my left brain by one second? But you know, it's not just what's happening in the mind. It's what's also happening in the body. It's the joy of living. See, the power of this story for me is that it's, it's a total experience. One of the wisdom sayings that you find in the New Testament is to offer your body as a living sacrifice. And this was so powerful because this person recognized that it's the totality, it's the body. See, I appreciate the power of going in. I appreciate what it means to to go in and to pay attention and to understand and to live with a deep internal awareness. But if you live with a deep internal awareness... And, and, and you're not dominated by your emotions, you're not denying them, but you're aware of them, it will overflow into an awareness of your body. So that the Gnostic energy where you go in doesn't stay stuck there, but it goes beyond Gnosticism to a whole body and mind approach. In this story, we find that it's not just about the mind and it's not just about the body, it's the body and the mind together. As we imbibe the wine and it crosses that blood-brain barrier, what it means for all of us to be involved in the transformation. Again, more than actually physically just drinking wine. This story is an invitation to that. Too many times in spirituality, in performance psychology, in philosophy, in uh, understanding religions, we see them develop along these lines where there's an overemphasis of the body or the mind, and it's both and. We live in a world right now that 
doesn't really understand each other always in regards to how your brain is different than mine and my body is different than yours. I finished season three of Ozark and I won't give any of the storyline away, but just freshly attuned to the sensitivity of Jason Bateman's brother-in-law who had this struggle, right? This challenge with his mind. And, and what, what we do when we don't understand that the whole person is involved. We can't fully separate body and mind. We don't know how they start and stop together. And we'll probably find out way more scientifically, but I don't know that we'll ever be able to separate it. But wisdom lets us know there's a joy of living where we don't have to worry about separating it. I have to believe that Frank Herbert was a polycontemplative. He was a pecan because he said, when we rely only on our eyes, our other senses weaken. And so with this story, it's a reminder that it's all of us. It's all of who we are. So I'm invited in the joy of living. Not only am I invited into the joy of living with this story, I'm invited into the simplicity of serving, the simplicity of serving. See, at this story, what we're seeing is water get turned to wine. There's a practical need being met. Now, there's something bigger, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But right now, there's a million causes around you that you can't go take care of yet. Your time hasn't yet come to take care of those, but you can turn the water into wine. Whatever it means for you to bring the fullness of who you are and who you're becoming into the doing. I know you would like to fix every cause in the world, but you can't. In fact, we see in the context of this story, it's at a wedding. There's 150 people there. I don't know how many people are there, but I'm saying whatever the number is, it's, it's a container that you can actually get your heart and mind around. You could understand the suffering of the context that's there. Our brains have actually evolved. Some have said that we really can't handle more, than, more suffering than our tribe, more than maybe 150 people. There's some limit to that. And we're pushing the limits of that as we try to carry the weight of the world. And we shut down from all this stress because we can't carry it all. We can't do it all. And there's been so much wisdom to guide us on this, right? I mean, I think about that one teacher that said, hey, if you gave a cup of cold water or if you came and visited that person in prison, you were visiting me. You were giving me the cup of cold water. And the crowd was like, when do we do that? Well, when you did it for the least of these, you did it for me. And right now there's a million of cups of cold water around you and you can't give them all, but you can give the ones you can give. So... There's a joy of living and there's a simplicity of serving where I go, what's the thing that I can do? You know, I, I can't rescue the 99 sheep, but I can leave the 99 and go rescue the one. The poor will always be with us. What can I do? There's a story of two ladies, Mary and Martha, and Martha's doing all the preparations and being very serious and responsible. And she's got her checklist and she's mad and she's like, hey, Mary needs to come help me. And Jesus goes, Mary's doing the better thing. Some of you, as you hear this, there's an irresponsibility you need to embrace and you need to get back to the joy of living. So then you can engage the simplicity of serving so that it's you coming from a centered, secure place like a Mary, not like the worried, frantic, stressed Martha. Aren't you glad I'm serving you? There's a simplicity of serving that is so powerful when we lock into it that sets us free to push back from all the stress that's gotten us here that allows us to grow into a better, more full engagement 
into those that we serve. Now, there's a really cool note here that we can't skip over. This story is in the context of a wedding. And for some of you that listen to this, the simplicity of serving is for you to understand that it's in the context of a committed relationship that you'll find your deepest growth. Here's what I mean. As, as marriage evolved, as humans evolved to, I should say, I should say form marriage, yes, are there places where patriarchy has been at work to do damage? Yes, yes. Has reli- have religions rubber-stamped things in the name of God, gods, the sacred, the deities? Yes, absolutely, that's happened. But yet still, there's a wisdom in marriage because it evolved as a practice where there was a, there was a lot of features and benefits from these two people being committed to each other. Now, all I want to say is this. Right now, I see this take on things that people are thinking, you know, we've got to throw marriage out because of these problems. That's, that's crazy. It came out of an, an evolutionary need, if you will. And so because you see this averse reaction to it, you're also now seeing a lot of, because I hear this, younger people saying, well, I'm not to the point yet that I could exist in a marriage. I'm not where I want to be. Marriage doesn't, marriage isn't something you, you jump into when you're fully formed. Marriage forms you as you go. What do I mean? It's in the story of this wedding of water being turned to wine that we see the simplicity of serving. You don't lose yourself in a long-term commitment. You find yourself over and over and over again. You deepen yourself. The things that irritate you and the other person become a place of fascination as the water keeps turning into wine and you build story after story after story of water turning into wine. So there's a joy of living. There's a simplicity of serving. There's also the power of community. There's the power of community. Transformation happens into the communal around the table. What's so powerful to me about this story is the water gets turned into wine and the wine is how we dance, we enjoy, we sing, we have the meal, we bond. Did everybody at the wedding party have the same politics? Did everybody at the wedding party have the same beliefs? Do beliefs matter? Do politics matter? Sure. But, but politics matter, but they're not the end of the matter. Your beliefs matter, but they're not even the end of the matter. The end of the matter is a community where we contribute and we help each other advance and grow even in spite of our differences, that there's a common shared progression of human consciousness that we participate in and we pitch in for. And and I'll tell you two great ditches that we've fallen into over and over and over again. One, so much of the structure of religion no longer turns water into wine for people, whatever the religion is. It helps them make meaning Uh, but that meaning can be more destructive than harmful. And we're seeing that play out, I think, at at a global scale. Why? Because it's not the wine. It's not the wine of the Spirit. There's no real deep, lasting transformation into a better humanity. The wine's been replaced with tang, and we just keep going and getting a sugar high. I mean, what we're seeing right now, I think, at a, at a global level is payments due. Payments due from all the fear-based, you know, whatever the religion, sermonizing, that, that dog whistles to people to get them to build the institution, but it doesn't build them as a human. And, and as that payment is due, we're finding more and more people, they don't really protest, they just leave. 
The other ditch that I see us falling into is the misuse of protest. You know, I have certain pains in my life. You have pains in your life. And there is a time and a place to protest. And I'm actually not judging anybody that's protesting. I, in fact, would say we need to raise our voices. We need to be in solidarity. Now is a moment right right now that we can advance some major things for human consciousness. Like we've said in some of the other episodes, you know, when we've seen major shifts happen, like ending slavery, women can vote. I mean, whatever. We need those advances. But you're not actually going to be able to just end the insecure patriarchy that happens sometimes in a, a man's heart, not all men, or the insecure racism that happens in any human's heart. They have to go through that transformation themselves. Where does that happen? Well, it's everything we've been talking about, but the practice of it gets embodied and lived out in the community around the table. If a protest turns into two people yelling at each other, society isn't going to advance. There's not going to be any transformation there. Wisdom has boundaries. Wisdom has justice. Wisdom has also peaceful, gentle awareness where I'm not needing validation, but I'm seeking to understand you and we come together. And so this story is an invitation to me. The joy of living, the simplicity of serving, and the power of community. And all I need to take away from it today is a reminder that I just need to be on the lookout. When life runs out of the wine, how might this water turn into wine? What might happen next? I want to be all eyes and all ears. Life will beat the spark out of your eye where you're not looking for it anymore. It will numb you out. And you've been to too many failed parties where the water never got turned to wine. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Stay on the lookout. Thanks for being here. Peace. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode. Please feel free to rate and share the podcast with others. More importantly, I want to invite you to come to SightShift.com, S-I-G-H-T Shift.com. There, I'm obsessively focused on helping people with three problems. Number one, how to work on their worldview and make their own meaning. Number two, how to find their place in the world and move with a laser-focused mission. And number three, transcend status games and build the healthy community they want to be a part of. Through our platform of content, certified coaches, and community, we are transformational guides to help you find your wisdom. Join us at SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, Shift.com.